Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. And it's an absolute pleasure to be here this evening to, to speak to you. Uh, and I'm going to talk for about 40, 45 minutes on Mission Principia and, uh, and then open the floor to, uh, to answer as many questions as you may have about the mission and, and space in general and any other topics. Um, mission Principia, I'll take you back to December 2015. Um, the launch site. So this had taken about two and a half years of training to reach this point for myself, Yuri Malenchenko, our Russian Soyuz commander, and Tim Kopra, NASA astronaut and crewmate. This is Soyuz TMA-19 as it rolls out towards the launch, the launch pad, the same launch pad that Yuri Gagarin launched to space on the 12th of April in 1961. Um, what's quite remarkable about this vehicle is um, about 10 days before this photograph was taken, Tim, Yuri, and I were sat uh, in, the, in the top of that rocket doing our final fit check, squeezed in, making sure everything was in place, sticking our stopwatch with a bit of Velcro exactly where we wanted and getting the whole capsule all sorted out. And then we actually watched it as it, as it got assembled, the third stage, the second stage assembled together, uh, and the spacecraft on top, nose fairing on, all assembled in a uh, you know, horizontal building, not like the vertical assembly building you have at the Kennedy Space Center, but all horizontally assembled and then rolled out on this train. Uh, and something that we do at this point, we're in quarantine, it's bad luck, it's considered superstitious uh, and bad luck for the, the prime crew to watch the rollout ceremony. So we're back in our quarantine crew quarters, but it's considered good luck to have a coin crushed by the train. So uh, I, had, I had one of my Russian friends who was watching the rollout ceremony placing some coins on the railway track so that the, the, uh, the train could crush them. And then, and then I carried one of those coins to space with me inside the, the rocket in true Russian tradition. Uh, so about four hours before the actual launch itself, this is Tim, Yuri, and I doing our final suiting up procedures. Uh, in building 254, again, everything is, it runs to the, the Russian tradition and system. It hasn't really changed much at all since, since Gagarin's day. This is Tim here uh, in his inflated suit, checking that the glove seals are good, the helmet seals are good, and the main compartment, which is sealed by two very high-tech, sophisticated rubber bands, which is the way that we seal the pressure suit up, going through his final uh, leak check. What's rather amusing is that having gone through all of this procedure and had technicians in masks and sterile gloves suit us up, about 15 minutes after this photograph was taken, when the bus is taking us out to the launch site, we all stop the bus, get off the bus, and go and pee on the back right-hand tyre, because that's what Gagarin did. And so if it worked for him, then it's going to work for us. And then we frantically do our suits up ourselves, zip ourselves all back up again, and then go and launch into space. Uh, so this is now, uh, you know, we've, we've had the, the, the bus has taken us out there, and this is just prior to going out um, or going up on the rocket. Something that is quite remarkable at this stage is just what it's like, the experience of being that close to a fully fueled 300-ton rocket. Uh, it was amazing to see all of the, uh, the, the fuel that was boiling off, or the cryogenic fuel wear. And what was a green rocket that I had seen roll out, and you know, not seen roll out, but I'd seen in the hangar, is now a white rocket because the frosting all over the second and third stage and the first stage boosters turns, it turns the Soyuz into a white rocket. And it's, it is like an, a, a live beast. Uh, it really is all the hissing, the steam, the fuel boiling off. That elevator ride up the rocket is, is quite something, quite an experience. Um, 
I just want to talk a little bit uh, about the launch. Um, I, I don't know, I suspect some of you inside has, has, have seen a rocket launch. A show of hands, maybe, is who, who's seen a rocket launch? So quite a few there. My, the first rocket launch that I saw was actually six months prior uh, when I was backup crew for my own launch. I tried to go and watch a shuttle launch out of Kennedy. One of my uh, Swedish colleagues, Christoph Fugelsang, who launched in 2009. Uh, and unfortunately, that got delayed and delayed and delayed, and I didn't get to see it. So my first Soyuz launch was when I was backup crew. What really struck me when I saw that was the noise and the pure power of a rocket launch. So I'd just like to play you an audio clip that uh, Dallas Campbell of the BBC, he recorded this on some very uh, high-tech uh, audio equipment from 0.7 kilometers away. So if we could just have... So that's what about 9 million horsepower sounds like lifting a 300-ton rocket off the launch pad. Absolutely phenomenal. And the feeling inside the rocket, because actually the, the noise inside the rocket isn't as impressive as it is outside. We're shielded. We have acoustic shielding. We have a helmets on. We have communications cap on. But what we do get inside the rocket, of course, is that immense feeling of power, vibration, and acceleration, which is, is quite exhilarating as the rocket launches. We don't even know when the rocket leaves the launch pad because there is so much vibration. Uh, <clears throat> but what we do have is the clock that starts running and then, of course, the G-load builds up and then we realize we've left the pad and we're en route. Uh, also, which is rather disappointing, is you don't get a countdown, as people are saying. Lots of, I was talking to lots of uh, students and school children this morning um, and you know, whenever you would expect a good countdown in life, it would be prior to a rocket launch. But there's, there's no one giving you 10, 9, 8, 7. But what it is, is your Russian instructor who has taught you for the whole two and a half years. Your Russian instructor is talking you through the system. So he's talking to you about fuel pressures, about engine thrust, intermediate thrust, full thrust, gangways down. So we get these cues. We know when we're leaving based on what he's saying. Uh, but unfortunately, there's no, there's no big countdown. Um, and then, of course, we're into the launch sequence. And a few minutes after launch, when the first stage boosters are expended, uh, the second stage looks like this. And, of course, at that stage, we're about 80 kilometers up into Earth's atmosphere. We consider space to be 100 kilometers at the Kármán line. And at 80 kilometers, there really isn't a huge amount of, of Earth's atmosphere left. And so that's why we can jettison the nose fairing at that point. And for the astronauts, this is quite a remarkable stage in the launch because um, for the first time, you get to see space through the windows. And where we sit inside the Soyuz, the window's a little bit higher than, than we are. So we project our vision outside the window and you just see the complete blackness of space approaching. And it really is quite remarkable when you have that first view of, uh, of space and the blackness of space. Um, the first stage is exhilarating from raw power, three and a half G it builds up to, and then the first stage uh, cuts away with a big jolt. The second stage is actually rather smooth, a, a nice smooth ride, only about two Gs of acceleration. And then the second stage drops off with a, a big jolt. And then the third stage kicks in. Now the third stage I actually think is the most fun um, in terms of the launch sequence. Uh, by this stage, you're up in space, and the rocket, having achieved uh, the majority of its altitude, you're now just interested in getting orbital 
velocity. You need to get to seven kilometers per second in order to remain in orbit. So this third stage is all about speed, and it's foot-to-the-floor acceleration. The same rate of acceleration as Lewis Hamilton's Formula One car, but you've been doing this for eight minutes and 48 seconds. Uh, so it really is an, a, a, an overwhelming experience and, and sheer fun and exhilaration riding that third stage. And then the third stage cuts out with a very big jolt, ha having peaked to about four Gs of acceleration, you go straight to, to zero G, and of course that's when everything floats inside the capsule, inside the spacecraft, and you realize you're in orbit. We don't have much time to enjoy that first experience of being in space and weightlessness now, because we're, we're rendezvousing with the space station in just six hours, which really isn't very long, shorter than many transatlantic flights. Um, and what we have to do in that six hours uh, is a number of tasks. We first have to circularize the orbit. We have to tidy up any errors that have occurred during orbital insertion. And we're injected about 220 kilometers. The space station's at 400 kilometers. So we have to raise our orbit up to 400 kilometers and to catch up with the space station and rendezvous with it. So no sooner are we into orbit than we're straight into the first, second engine burns in order to, to do all of that work. So it's a very busy cockpit inside that spacecraft. However, after about uh, six hours, we should, if all goes well, find ourselves in this situation. Now, this is our Soyuz uh, TMA-19. We were docking uh, to one of the Russian ports uh, coming from underneath the space station, if you like. And what you see here uh, on this side of the, the picture is actually a solar panel from the Cygnus resupply spacecraft. So we were coming in right next to Cygnus. Uh, and as we came in, uh, what, what really struck me out the window was firstly how large the space station looks. I mean, we're in a tiny Soyuz spacecraft, uh, and you look outside and you just see the enormity of the space station, these massive solar panels either side as we inch our way closer and closer up towards our docking port. And then looking at the Cygnus solar panels with our Soyuz solar panels, I realized there was only going to be about four meters of clearance, so there, there isn't a lot of room for error. Uh, and so when something went wrong at about 17 meters away from the space station, our thruster sensors failed. And we had an emergency alarm go off in the, uh, in, the, in the spacecraft, and the Soyuz immediately started an automatic abort. So Tim, Yuri, and myself were straight into our emergency procedures to try and work out what had gone wrong. And it became apparent that Yuri was going to have to take manual control of the spacecraft and fly us in for a manual docking, uh, which has been done several times before. But unfortunately, at the time that Yuri was trying to do this, and you kind of almost see this from the picture, we, we were going from day to night. It's a little bit hard to make out with the lights. But the, uh, in, in terms of the, the orbit, we were transitioning from the day side uh, into the shadow of the Earth. And that meant the sun was very, very low on the horizon, and it was reflecting off the whole of the space station straight into Yuri's eyes and straight into his optics and straight into his sensors. So he was having a really, really hard time seeing anything at all as he closed with the space station. Um, thankfully, Yuri was on his sixth mission to space. He's one of the most experienced Russian cosmonauts there are. And I was very grateful to be flying with him on that day because he, he realized that the approach was not going to plan. We'd yawed about 45 degrees off axis and we were drifting aft down the space station. So he had the, uh, the awareness to be able to back off, go straight back out into space to tidy it up and then come in for what was a, a textbook docking. And then uh, no sooner we'd completed that than we had arrived on board the space station. This is me being greeted by uh, Sergei Volkov, Misha Kornienko, 
uh, of, uh, of Russia. And uh, we brought the ISS crew, Expedition 46 started, brought the crew back up to six again. And of note on board at that time was Scott Kelly from NASA, and I've mentioned Misha, who are both nine months into their year-long stay on orbit. What was fascinating for me, you know, having uh, you know, spoken to Scott and Misha just a few months before and, and said cheerio to them, and I was really interested to, to see what state they were going to be in psychologically and physically. And it was amazing just to see how good they were. I mean, in, in terms of their psychological frame of mind, their sense of humor, their work uh, eth uh, ethos as well, um, and their efficiency levels and their physical strength as well. I mean, uh, it, it was quite remarkable to see the condition they're in. It gave me a huge amount of confidence, and especially having spoken to them both since landing, that we're well on the way to solving many of the physiological and psychological problems associated with long-duration spaceflight. No sooner had we got on board the, the space station, and actually Mission Control uh, said we have a, a problem outside. Um, on the truss segment of the space station, we have what's called an MT cart. It's a bit like a, a rail cart that can run along the length of the truss, and uh, that enables the robotic arm to be able to do lots of outdoor maintenance activities without needing astronauts to go and do a spacewalk. And this MT cart had become stuck. Um, and they didn't quite know why, but they couldn't move it. It was stuck between two docked positions. Uh, which was bad because the robotic arm was attached to it, and the robotic arm's a vital piece of equipment. It was also bad because um, the, we would, did not want to reboot the space station or use the space station thrusters with, without knowing that that empty cart was secure. So uh, Scott and Tim had to go out at very, very short notice, about three days' notice, to uh, do a, a, an unplanned spacewalk get outside and free up the cart. One of my tasks was to be the, what's called the IV, the guy inside the space station who has to get them suited up, depressurize the airlock, get them out safely, and then recover them back safely. So it was a bit of a baptism by fire with uh, having not even been on board the space station for one week to, to go through that. That Scott out on the, on the spacewalk, uh, and thankfully that all went uh, extremely well, and they were back inside safely with mission accomplished. <clears throat> um, I'd like to talk just a little bit about what, what is like day-to-day -day operations on board the space station. This comes up an awful lot in, in questions. And firstly, what time zone do we work? Well, we work GMT, so space station is just coming up for 25 past 6 right now with Paolo on board. They'll be having, uh, having dinner probably shortly. Um, and we work about a 12-hour day. We work from 7 in the morning uh, to about 7 at night. Starts with a, a around-the-world conference, if you like. We call it Morning DPC, Daily Planning Conference. We start off speaking to Houston. Then we bounce to Huntsville, Alabama, who manage our U.S. payloads. Then over to Munich to speak to the European Space Agency. Then over to, to Scuba, just outside of Tokyo and Japan. Japan. Japanese Space Agency will run us through their program and then on to Moscow to run through that program. That whole thing takes about 20 minutes, just talking to each of those control centers. And we're talking about any last-minute changes to the schedule uh, overnight whilst we've been sleeping, maybe things are, uh, the plan has changed, uh, or any high-profile or high-priority activities we might have to do that day. And then it's on with the job in hand. Uh, and you can see there, we each have our own timeline, and we work through our timeline, always being chased by the big red line to see whether we're ahead or behind schedule. 
But what's interesting is, I would say for about 90% of the time on the space station, we're working as individuals. There are very few tasks that require two people to work on. Um, and so when people say, you know, uh, you know what's it like and, and do you get frustrated in that claustrophobic environment with six crew members on board and, and how do you, you know, interact with each other? Actually, you almost end up craving company because all day long, every day, you just work by yourself. So when it comes to lunchtime or when it comes to the evening meal, you really appreciate coming together as a crew and being able to, to talk to people and ask people about their day and, and, uh, and you enjoy people's company as opposed to actually getting frustrated up there. About 60% of the time is, done on, is spent doing scientific activities on board the space station. About 30% is maintaining it. ISS turns 20 next year. Uh, the European Columbus module is uh, 10 years old next year. So anything that's been up in space for 20 years takes a little bit of maintenance, um, and that's both uh, for spacewalks and also internal maintenance as well. And the remainder of the time, we spend doing uh, fitness training, uh, management conferences, PR, educational outreach, etc. So um, after a couple of months, it was my turn to venture outside the space station with Tim Copra. And this was on a, a planned spacewalk as opposed to a, a contingency spacewalk. And we had to repair something called the uh, SSU, the sequential shunt unit, which is a little bit like a circuit breaker box. And it was on the very furthest starboard edge of the space station. All of the electrical power coming into this uh, segment of the solar panels uh, wasn't being received by the space station because the circuit breaker box had failed. So we had to take out a, a new SSU all the way out to the starboard edge and repair it and replace it. Um, what was interesting for me is you know, going out into space for the first time, it's probably one of the most, if not the most, exhilarating moments of my life. Uh, imagine you've trained for this event for so many years, uh, and then finally you get the opportunity to, to descend out of that airlock. We just transitioned again from day to night, so everything was dark beneath me. It's like dropping down into a black abyss. Uh, I mean, I can only really uh, describe it in terms of, of diving, night diving, for example. Um, and uh, Scott Kelly captured this photograph. This is me, what it looked like from the airlock going down. And um, um, Yuri Melenchenko captured this photograph from the Soyuz spacecraft coming the other way. So that's my feet coming out. Um, uh, and for NASA planning to the first five minutes of any spacewalk, just this, re this adaptation time so that you can get used to the feeling of what it's like outside in space at night with your headlamps and get getting used to that microgravity feeling. Um, Tim Coper and myself had to get out to the starboard edge in good time because part of the task, part of the difficulty with the task that we had to do um, with the SSU was the fact it had to be replaced at night. Um, because the only way to switch off the electrical power was to wait for the sun to go down. There was no other way of switching the power off. So Tim and I had rehearsed our route out there. We knew that it was quite a tricky route, and my task was to carry the new SSU with me, which is about the size of a small fridge. So no mean feat getting this huge box out there. Uh, and, and it's a little bit like a rock climber studying a difficult pitch when you look at your routes out to, to where you have to go, studying every handhold, every body position, noticing areas that might be tricky, planning alternative routes if something doesn't go, go quite to plan. So Tim and I were quite relieved 
when we finally got out at the work site and we had everything set up ready to go and we still had 10 minutes worth of daylight left. Um, now, there are always secondary tasks to do on a spacewalk. So we called down to Mission Control and, and said, right, we're ready to go. And they decided that rather than risk anything going wrong, we were ready, we were in place. They said, guys, you've got 10 minutes, just hang out. <laughs> Which I don't, think, I don't think any astronauts have ever been told to, to hang out on a spacewalk before. Uh, but that's exactly what we, that's exactly what we did. Uh, and, uh, and again, that was uh, just a remarkable 10 minutes up in space, uh, just having the freedom to be able to move your body in any orientation, to be able to look down on the Earth as we waited for the sun to set and as we saw the shadow of the Earth approaching, uh, knowing that we were moving into it, uh, and being able to look out the other direction as well into space. Uh, this is just this is the view looking back at the space station from the starboard edge, and you can see the whole space station there. Uh, and you actually feel quite comforted when you're next to uh, structure. When you're next to big structure, you don't really notice the, the heights and how high up you are or how fast you're moving. Um, but when you look the other way, it's quite scary because that's what you see. Um, <laughs> And, and it's just it's just black. There's nothing there at all. And actually, I, I quite enjoyed it. I put my tether on. It's about a three-foot tether. And I just enjoyed pushing away and absolutely floating out there. Uh, and uh, it kind of gave me an impression as what, you know, what Bruce McCandless must have felt like when he did his untether DVA. He took it you know, several steps uh, orders of magnitude beyond that. But just to go out into the black abyss uh, of space. Um, and of course, as soon as we get to nighttime, we then start to see the stars. But by daytime, the, uh, the, Earth, the brightness of the Earth and the sun means that space is absolutely the blackest black you could possibly imagine. And it's very intimidating when you look over your shoulder and that's all you see is just the blackness of space. Um, so no sooner had, no sooner had we done our, our uh, SSU repair, we continued with the rest of the spacewalk, and unfortunately, uh, Tim Copra's uh, spacesuit then developed a problem after about four hours, and uh, water started coming into his helmet, so we had to terminate the spacewalk sooner than we expected. Um, so just, I'd like to talk a little bit about the science on board the space station. That's the primary reason we have a laboratory in space is to do science in the microgravity environment. Isn't it fantastic? You can change a parameter like gravity. Well, you can learn an enormous amount about all sorts of areas of science. Um, some of the science that's going on aboard the space station right now is fascinating in terms of studying new materials, in terms of studying new drugs, new pharmaceuticals, growing protein crystals so we can develop new drugs. Um, uh, and investigating flame technology so that we can make more efficient engines uh, or has very relevant impacts back on Earth. Um, but I actually found that some of the science that I really enjoyed the most were those experiments where the astronauts are very much involved themselves, and this is the life science experiments. The body goes through the most remarkable change when you go into space. The moment that that third engine on the rocket launch cuts out, your body starts changing. All the fluid shifts up, centers around your chest, and you notice immediately an increased pressure in your head, and you notice a stuffy nose based on this, this in, increased inter, intracranial pressure. And your body doesn't like that. It doesn't like having an excess of pressure in the head, 
And so it starts getting rid of the extra body fluid that is causing this pressure. Um, so you start reducing your blood volume, your, your amount of plasma in your body reduces. Um, and then all other effects start taking place as well. Of course, over a longer duration, you're not using your muscles as much, so you have muscle atrophy. Uh, you're not stimulating the muscle to bone reactions, and so your, your bones, your osteoblasts, start, sort of stop, uh, stop producing so much bone, and so you have bone mineral density atrophy as well. Uh, in addition to that, your arterial, your cardiovascular system deconditions, deconditions and your arteries become stiffer. Your arteries age 20 years in, in space. Now, thankfully, that reverses itself about six months after landing. But just having a 20-year aging process in a period of five months in space is a wonderful environment in which to study all sorts of aspects about the human body. Your vision changes. Uh, most astronauts become more far-sighted. Still under investigation is, is exactly why. But all of these life science experiments are going on on board the space station. We're learning more and more about the human body, both its transition into microgravity and its transition back into Earth's gravity when we land. Some of the other interesting experiments that are going on are technology demonstrations, and this is one example of driving the Bridget rover, which was at the Airbus Mars Yard in Stevenage. And my task on this particular day was to, uh, as, uh, to investigate the sort of human-machine interface aspects of how can we control rovers from a space station, looking ahead to when we have lunar missions and when we have Mars missions, Martian missions, we have astronauts on board space stations that need to be able to control rovers. Uh, and actually, in addition to just controlling them and carrying out tasks, part of this test was to develop a delay-tolerant network. So it's like an internet in space and how we can actually have high-fidelity control of a rover but uh, dealing with all the, the, the delays that are possible with a space-based internet system. I want to mention a little bit about robotics as well because... Robotics is very important on board the space station. We have the Canada arm, and it's vital for our resupply vehicles. So many of the, the space station resupply vehicles don't dock automatically. They just hover about 10 meters beneath the space station, and it's up to the astronauts to come and grapple these vehicles and then dock them manually to the space station. Uh, coming from a military flying background, a test pilot's background, I've been familiar with many, many different aircrafts using the highest technologies of uh, automatic tracking, automatic capture devices, and I thought that perhaps the space station would be up there. Uh, at the highest level of technology. I was very surprised to find that we have two rickety old hand controllers with large amounts of free play. Uh, no, uh, we have one visual camera to help us. We have no automatic tracking devices, no automatic capture devices, and the, no laser range finders. The only way that we judge the distance as we're closing in on the visiting vehicle is by your crewmate over your shoulder who's got printed out bits of A4 paper saying, that looks like it's three metres, that looks like it's two metres, <laughs> and that looks like it's one metre. Uh, and you're dealing with several hundred million dollars worth of, of spacecraft and, and about a hundred billion dollars worth of space stations, so the pressure is on to get it right. Uh, and to not mess up. So needless to say, we do train rather a lot on robotic arm operations to make sure it all goes smoothly. Um, this is SpaceX. I had the 
the honour and the privilege of capturing this SpaceX uh, as it came up. And, and this was a, a, about 20 minutes before I actually captured it. And I was taking some photographs and I'd, I'd really wanted to capture Dubai. And I was amazed. I was just taking the fiction of SpaceX as we just went over Dubai. And I managed to catch them both, both together. But the, the great thing about SpaceX, of course, it brings up just over three tons worth of cargo. But more importantly, at the moment, SpaceX is what's carrying down the majority of our scientific experiments. We can carry down a limited amount in the Soyuz with us, but bearing in mind only the descent module makes it back down to, to Earth safely. There's not much room in the descent module once you get three people in it to carry down experiments. So SpaceX carries down about two and a half tons worth of cargo. So the majority of today's science that's coming down is, is in this beast. Uh, and this is uh, Orbital ATK's, the Cygnus vehicle, resupply vehicle. Uh, and, and actually, we're now using the stretched version of Cygnus, which is even bigger and, and better. It carries about three and a half tons of pressurized cargo up. So absolutely vital for space station operations. <clears throat> uh, and of interest on SpaceX uh, 8, which uh, we, we had up and I captured, we had Bigelow's expandable activity module, the BEAM module. Uh, that's currently on board the space station and undergoing a, a two-year test uh, program, which has now been extended as well, investigating uh, the potential usage of expandable modules for future space stations. So very interesting research going on there. Uh, and this is the crew of 4647 inside the, uh, the B module. Uh, I want to touch on just the, uh, another area of Mission Principia as well, and that's the Education Outreach Program. And now, clearly... Being selected as a British astronaut uh, is something that doesn't happen very often. It was 20 years since Helen Sharman flew to the Mir space station. And so when I was assigned to this mission, we realized that we had to make the absolute most uh, of it. And that meant the UK Space Agency and the European Space Agency working together to try and build the best outreach program we, we could. Uh, and we started off with a, a sheet of paper with about 30 projects, and we thought, well, if only 50% of these work, then we'll call that success. As it happened, all of the educational projects went down very, very smoothly and were a huge success. We managed to reach out to 1.6 million schoolchildren uh, over the UK, and over 60% of UK schools were involved in one way or another with one of these educational programs. And it wasn't just STEM-based subjects. So, of course, we wanted to focus on STEM. We have a skill shortage in the UK, and so we wanted to address that as much as we could. But we also wanted to reach out beyond just STEM into areas like art and drama and, and literacy and music uh, and interest all sorts of students and to how we can use space to get you involved in those missions as well. So these were some of the, uh, the programs that we ran. And of course, another area of, uh, of outreach is uh, ham radio, which is very successful on board the space station, where most astronauts are really, really keen to get involved in this. It's great fun for us to, when we're on board the space station to be able to connect with anybody back on Earth, be that our friends, our family, mission control, or to speak to schools on the radio. Uh, and so this, for, for us, was wonderful. We, ha we actually had our thousandth Aris call, an amateur radio call on board the space station whilst Tim and I were up there. Uh, and between us, we spoke to over 50 schools in 20 different countries in our six-month mission. So a very successful program. However, in terms of spare time, most astronauts would probably agree that one of the, their favorite activities is this, to go to the cupola window, grab the camera, and take photographs of planet Earth. 
It's absolutely stunning. And when I get asked, what do I miss the most about space? It has to be the view of Earth. And what's interesting is by daytime, this is what you see. You see Earth as continents, as geological features, four billion years of, of evolution of, uh, in the making. You see mountain ranges. This is the Himalayas, uh, the Antarctica, uh, Alaska, for example. You don't see borders, and you'd see very, very little man evidence of man-made structures whatsoever. It's incredibly hard to pick out any man-made structures whatsoever from space unless you know where to look, and then you're looking through telescopic camera lenses. Uh, these are the sand dunes over the, over the Saharas. But by night, that changes. By night, human habitation, human occupation of planet Earth is very visible. Uh, and you see thunderstorms, you see cities, you see the fantastic aurora borealis. I was amazed at how often we saw, saw the aurora. Uh, I was expecting to see it about once or twice. I saw it about 40, 40 or 50 times. Thunderstorms that stretch across thousands of kilometers, uh, fishing boats off the coast of Thailand, and then looking out into space and seeing the Milky Way and seeing other planets in the solar system and even seeing the Andromeda galaxy as well over the horizon. All of these views are absolutely stunning and will remain with me forever. And then no sooner had it felt like I'd arrived in space, it was time to prepare for the re-entry. And now if I thought that you know, launching into space was uh, an exhilarating experience, then coming back <laughs> is, is just takes it to another order of magnitude. Excuse me. It's probably the wildest ride that I will ever experience in my life. Um, and actually, it starts off very sedately. You cram yourself back into the Soyuz, and, uh, and uh, you go through the undocking procedure. And then for the first orbit... In the Soyuz, nothing much really happens. You're just preparing everything, preparing the spacecraft for re-entry. And then everything suddenly happens at once. Uh, you run through the deorbit burn. And this is one of the uh, areas of, of greatest anticipation for the crew, or greatest apprehension, if you like, because bearing in mind this spacecraft has been up in space for six months, being exposed to the radiation environment, the thermal extremes. You're hoping that that engine starts up. If the engine doesn't work, you're not coming home. Well, actually, we do have backup thrusters, but it's still a very big event to be able to burn the engine for the deorbit burn for the correct period of time. And again, it's down to the second. If the engine burns too short, then your re-entry angle will be too shallow. If the engine doesn't switch off and it burns too long, you're going to come back in very steep. That's not going to only affect uh, your, 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 the, your, the G-loading on re-entry. It's going to affect where you land by thousands of kilometers. So the deorbit burn has to work perfectly. After the deorbit burn, you then have to separate the capsule. And again, there have been problems in the past where the, cap the spacecraft hasn't separated. And uh, the Soyuz has come back with the descent module and the service module still attached. In fact, this happened with Yuri, my commander, on one of his previous missions. Um, and they entered Earth's atmosphere still with the service module attached. And that's a very aerodynamically unstable situation. What happened is the, it was flipping 180 degrees constantly. And of course, the heat shield was being protected by the service module. So when it flipped, the hatch was coming in first. And the hatch isn't designed to take 1,600 degrees Celsius. Uh, and thankfully, the Soyuz is engineered such that the bolts will burn before the hatch burns, and so that happened successfully, and the, the bolts burned, and the service module was jettisoned, and then the spacecraft was able to orientate itself correctly, heat shield first. Uh, but it's a very dynamic event, both separation of the spacecraft and then entering Earth's atmosphere. 
Once a spacecraft is separated and you're in the descent module, you are simply tumbling, rolling head over heels, waiting for the top of Earth's atmosphere to pick you up. And at that point, that's when the spacecraft will get into this aerodynamically stable situation. But that tumbling is quite remarkable. Having been up at 400 kilometers for six months in a very stable space station, uh, looking out the window and enjoying the view, to suddenly find yourself down at 100 kilometers in a tiny spacecraft that's tumbling like this for several minutes, waiting for the top of the atmosphere to start picking this up, is, is quite remarkable. You feel very uncontrolled and feel very exposed to the elements. And then, no sooner does the atmosphere pick you up than the G-load starts building. And that G-load builds up quite gradually at first and then gets up to about five, four to five Gs. The whole re-entry lasts for about eight minutes. Uh, this photograph up here just shows the view through the window at one point uh, when you have the big plasma uh, shield coming around the spacecraft and anything that can burn outside the spacecraft will burn. All the thermal protection, it's all burning off. And then eventually, even the windows themselves, they burn over and then you can't see anything outside the spacecraft. And then if everything goes smoothly, uh, after the very dynamic parachute opening, you're left under the canopy with about a 15-minute parachute journey back down to Earth. Uh, and then all that's left is about 0.7 metres off the ground. We have these soft landing thrusters, which I love the name soft landing thrusters. There's no such thing as a, a Sawyer's soft landing. Um, but the soft landing thrusters fire, and that just reduces the uh, velocity to a minor car crash as opposed to a major car crash. <laughs> And we, we find ourselves slamming into the steps of Kazakhstan uh, and uh, rolling over, which is nine times out of ten. The main job there, of course, as soon as we've hit the ground, is the Soyuz commander has to cut one of the parachute cables because the parachute otherwise will still be inflated. And if there's a strong wind blowing, the capsule will get dragged along the ground. And this has happened several times before, which is very uncomfortable for the crew. So the first thing we need to do is cut that parachute riser. And then we find ourselves back on planet Earth. So I've whizzed through that in about 45 minutes, which has hopefully left uh, plenty of time for any questions that you may have. Thank you. Well,